This is episode six of the Ledge podcast with Dr. Lyle Oberg. He's a former minister of finance, learning, infrastructure, and transportation. On today's episode, we discuss what it means when his department says from sperm to worm, what Lougheed's MLAs did that led tonight's sittings, and what the UCP needs to do to maintain party unity. Future episodes include former MLAs Karen Libivici, Iris Evans, Denny Ducharme, and Lori Blakeman. Enjoy. You had a few other accomplishments you were proud of that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, another one is the veterinary school in Calgary. And that was a, a real, really interesting lesson in politics, both local and university politics. Um, we did not have enough vets in Alberta. And I'd been minister of learning for five years and I felt that we had to do something to get more vets. There was a shortage. Um, cattle producers didn't have enough big animal vets and so on. So I went to, to Saskatoon, which is where the only veterinary school was in Western Canada. And I said, listen, we'll buy more spots. We'll pay for them. You guys you know, put in another 30 or 40 spots in your university and we'll pay for them from Alberta. And they kind of hummed and hawed and said, well, no, we really don't need any more. Uh, any more vets. So I walked out of that meeting. I said, fine, I'm going to start an o- our own vet school. So we talked to the University of Alberta, the University of Calgary, and got proposals from them on a vet school. Uh, and as I was making that public that we were going to be starting a vet school, that's when all hell broke, broke loose with the veterinary veterinarians. Um, the veterinarians did not want a vet school in Calgary. Uh, I remember going to meetings and, uh, you know, the veterinarians were rude while they were talking to me, saying, absolutely not. We don't need any more vet schools. And interestingly, they even t- um, even talked to some of my vets in Brooks who came and talked to me specifically. So they pulled the local punch as well. And ultimately, um, we got it through and it's, you know, a great member of the University of Calgary. And I heard actually the other day, um, this was on uh, Danielle Smith. Um, there was a vet that was on there and he gave the chronology of it. And they mentioned me and they also said that they were short of vets again, despite the fact that the veterinary school in Calgary was already um, graduating an extra 60 vets. So, you know, it made me feel good that the decision that we made at that time was something that has helped out Alberta, which it really has and helped out Alberta animal owners. And uh, I think that, you know, sometimes the universities get a little too set in their ways. And this was one where I decided to do what was right as opposed to what the universities wanted. And it worked out really good. On that that point, most people probably wouldn't realize all the lobbying that goes on with some of the most mundane regulations, policy decisions, and how they will go into your backyard, almost literally, uh, to fight you. Um, yeah, that's what was happening, James. And, and it was really interesting. But, you know, I had, you know, I came from a, ratch, a ranching uh, community, and I knew what the issues were. And so, 
And at that particular point in time, I really wasn't that scared of them. And so I, um, you know, went after them and subsequently got it done. And it was one of those things that I got it done. I knew that I was going to be leaving that portfolio. I'd been in there five and a half years. I was the longest um, sitting minister of learning slash education um, in Canada by 50%. And I knew that I was going to be leaving soon. So I wanted to set in motion something that couldn't be stopped. And so I hurried and got it done. Um, you know, there was people in my own caucus that were saying, well, why don't, why don't you just leave it? You know, why don't you just leave it for now? And, you know, we'll talk to the University of Alberta and, you know, let's, let's see if we can have them run the first two years in Saskatoon, the next two years and so on and so on. And I knew that that was political pressure that was being applied to them. And I managed to get it through. I got it done enough of the time that it couldn't be turned away and couldn't be turned back, and uh, which was great. How long from start to finish to give a sense of how long things can take in government, even when the minister insists on it? Well, this one I actually did pretty quickly. Um, I did this probably over about a year to a year and a half. And... Um, you know, again, I got buy-in from the from the University of Calgary. The University of Alberta didn't like it one bit that we had uh, done this, that had given it to the University of Calgary. Um, but it did, you know, and there were there were representations made to all the MLAs in um, in Edmonton and so on and so forth. But it took about a year and a half to get it through. But again, I had announced funding. I had announced, you know, I think we announced a dean. Um, I took a lot of work, but we managed to get it through. So that was a quick decision, 18 months. Yeah. And it costs you political capital with rural caucus, which in the conservative movement is, that's a big group of people in your caucus. The majority yeah, sometimes. It, yeah, it, it cost me political capital, but on the other hand, uh, it also gained me political capital because uh, a, there were a lot of the rural MLAs that had ranchers that had no vets or had very few vets. So they knew that we needed them. And, um, you know, did it cost me some capital in Edmonton? Yeah, it did. But like I say, it gained some capital elsewhere. Um, now, for people that don't know what the Minister of Learning is, you were responsible for everything from kindergarten to PhDs. You had education and advanced education. How did you juggle kindergarten and vet school and everything in between? Yeah, it was interesting. I, I had um, everything from birth to death in learning. So it wasn't just um, kindergarten. It was actually preschool. It was um, uh, K to 12. It was the universities, it was the technical schools, it was all the colleges, um, it was all the adult learning courses, everything from, you know, what my, um, my uh, administration used to affectionately say, everything from learning from sperm to worm. And was the, was the, what Not the official it. logo or the official motto <laughs> of advanced education. <laughs> That's right. So it, it was, uh, I, what I felt and ultimately what needed to be was that it should be a K to 16 system 
where K to 12 is the school, but you had to blend in the university, that you couldn't just artificially delineate between grade 12 and first year university because there was only two months difference. You're finished uh, grade 12 in, in June and you start university in September and you needed to look upon that as a continuum of learning as opposed to two different um, batches of learning. And that was what I tried to do. Yeah, I was just going to say the other interesting point in which I'm a big fan of is the name learning. And when you talk uh, Minister of Education, which is the common terminology, education means you're there for the education system. Um, learning means you're, that you're there for the learner. And that was a delineation that I you know, paid a lot of attention to. I felt that I was there for the learner and not the systems. There's a gap between high school and university that people talk about and probably would be better addressed if um, it was grouped like it was in your time. Yeah, and it, it uh, made the post-secondary system actually have to sit down with the K-12 system and talk and come up with solutions, you know, transfer courses, uh, transfer courses, things like that. Um, you know, we brought in scholarships for apprentices. Uh, that was the first time there'd ever been scholarships for apprentices. So we did a lot in that five and a half years. During that time, and I sheepishly asked this, Ralph Klein was in a bit of a scandal with his advanced education. Can you talk a bit about how you had to handle that because you were the Minister of Learning at the time? Yeah, it was a... Um... An interesting thing, obviously, for those of people who don't remember, uh, Ralph was accused of plagiarism, and he, he, you know, to his credit, and you've got to remember that this is a busy premier of a province, um, he wanted to go back and actually get a university degree, and he wanted to go back and get it um, the hard way, which was doing it, and he went through University of Athabasca, and one of his professors who did not particularly like Ralph um, identified part of his, um, his essay and said that he was plagiarizing it. And uh, it got a lot of play and it was uh, a very difficult time because it landed right in my lap. Um, I was the one who, you know, I wasn't told, but I, I felt I had to do something about it. Because on one hand, you had someone who had not had a huge amount of education, but he was in a position of power and he wanted to go back and become educated. And I thought that that was just, you know, one of the best kind of um, things that he could show the rest of the province what he was doing and how the importance of education. So it kind of landed in my lap and uh, I had to try and fix it. So ultimately it wasn't fixed and it kind of just petered out, but it was very, very unfortunate. Uh, totally understand um, when people in Alberta often rush into the oil field, or at least used to, that it would have sent a message going back, even as a, as a premier. Yes, absolutely. It was a great message. And he did it himself. It was not as though he was doing it for publicity. He was doing it because he literally wanted to get a university education. 
Now, you said you did five and a half years. I think you moved on to infrastructure and transportation. Is that right? That's right. That's correct. Now, a lot of people will think, oh, that's buildings and roads, but the capital, um, the politics of running those departments are pretty intense because every community wants a twinned highway, a new overpass, uh, a, you know, a new courthouse, a new building, you name it. How did you handle the politics of, of capital that way? It was difficult. Um, you had to, you know, weigh the needs of rural Alberta, who theoretically had more needs for infrastructure, um, simply because they had more roads, uh, versus the, when there was 20-some MLAs from Edmonton and Calgary. And, you know, you had the MLAs from rural Alberta who needed the roads paved. So it was balancing that versus, you know, building buildings, um, you know, uh, redoing roads, things like that. It was, it was something that I was not completely familiar with and not completely comfortable with as a, as a portfolio. Um, we had the ring roads that we were doing. I remember negotiating the Calgary ring road at that time. And I felt that we were 99% of the way to getting a deal with Sassina at that time. And then I was shuffled out and the next minister um, decided that it wasn't a good deal. So, which was his prerogative. So it uh, was an interesting portfolio, but it uh, was not something that I was particularly attuned to nor built for probably is the best way to put it. Well, it sounds like the lobbying would have been intense because Ralph had often said, and I'm paraphrasing slash butchering, be a lot further with 10,000 of resurfa resurfacing than uh, big announcements. People really care about what happens in their backyard. Yeah, it's a classic NIMBY, right? is that everyone wanted their roads paved. And, uh, you know, it goes right down to the local level, the, uh, you know, the um, county politicians and the city and town politicians want their roads paved. And what happened, if you remember back in the Don Getty era, there was a pledge made to, to, um, to pave all the secondary highways. So that expectation was still out there. So you had to you had to do that as well as to upkeep the roads. And the roads in Alberta, you know, notoriously are bad after a bad winter. So there was a lot of a lot of uh, work to be done. And this was a time when money was starting to get tight. It wasn't completely tight, but you could see it coming. And I think as a comparison in Saskatchewan, many of the secondary highways are are not paved. Yeah, and, and put it in context, so I, I think I remember a number. It's something like 20% of all roads in Canada are in Alberta because we're one of the few places that have a fully developed north, you know, essentially a fully developed north. Some huge amount of the roads in Canada were actually in Alberta. I think by this point, um, Ralph, uh, is approaching his leadership review and approaching the end of his his term. Um, yet you said the first eight years were populist. Do you have any thoughts on how that changed? Was it the oil boom? What was what changed over the you know Ralph's last few years going into his leadership review? 
It's very difficult to say, but it, it seems like Ralph lost a little bit of interest is probably the best way I could put it. If you remember in the 2004 election, kind of you know, within a week or two weeks after the election campaign, he said, this would be my last election. And in essence, what that did is it set him up as a lame duck for the next four years. And then, you know, two years, a year and a half or two, so years later, he said, no, no, I'm going to keep on. I'm going to run again. And that kind of component um, really, I don't think, sat well with Albertans. And I think he made some mistakes when he said those things. He didn't manage expectations. It's like the, the you said earlier, I saved the woman's life and then she's angry at me. Once you tell everyone you're going to leave and then you have everyone starting to think to the future, they don't want that pulled back. Yeah. And I think at that time, Ralph had a great legacy. And I think he you know, could have maintained that legacy by step, stepping aside gracefully. As he had said, he was the one who suggested it. It was not forced upon him at that point in time. He'd just come off a big election and uh, we were sitting nicely. So the leadership review, I think, was in 06. I'll let you tell your story because you had said, basically, it's time for a leadership review publicly at your local AGM. And that quickly led to you being voted out of caucus. Can you talk a bit <laughs> about that period of time? <laughs> Yeah, it was really interesting, um, you know, and looking back at it, you know, I, I think it ended up being, it was, it was very high intensity and high emotion, as you can imagine. And I think looking back, it was my political opponents of the day kind of jumping and seizing an opportunity. And um, it, in essence, I was forced out of caucus at that time. Um, I... Luckily, it was for a, you know, a set period of time, I think it was for six months or something along those lines, but uh, in which time I, I went and became an independent, but it was, uh, it was an interesting time. It, uh, I had said things that uh, certainly I probably shouldn't have. Uh, I was in a point of frustration because prior to that, what had occurred is Ralph had said, that anyone who was going to run for the leadership and keep in mind what he had said was that he was going to not have leadership for another two or three years and anyone who was going to run for the leadership had to state it at that particular point in time you have to make your your um, intentions known and then you had to step down from yep then you had to step down from cabinet and what that meant was that over the next you know, two to three years, um, not just a, a huge monetary hit on, you know, on me personally, if I wanted to run, it also gave a huge advantage to people who were not in the government at the time, because they could say and do whatever they wanted. Whereas those of us who wanted to run from within the government were still under, you know, the, the government handcuffs, so to speak. And so it, it seemed to me that it was um, done for the wrong reasons. And subsequently, you know, the frustration at that point led me to say some things that I shouldn't have. And, you know, I take full responsibility for that. And I was um, kicked out of caucus and subsequently 
uh, brought in um, back to caucus uh, three or four months later. So it was an interesting time. And not to fast forward too far, but you were back in and then you were quickly finance minister. So it's not like you were brought in the back door and put in the corner, like when, you know, with the deep six, you were put in probably the most powerful uh, minister's office outside the premier. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, it's, um, you know, if looking back with regrets on things, do I regret saying, you know, what I did? I said, yeah, probably did. But um, ultimately, I became Minister of Finance, and uh, that was great. So when I explain uh, to friends that don't follow politics too closely, especially conservative politics too closely, I often go back to Klein stepping down because once he stepped down, the PCs in particular just had leadership after leadership after leadership, and it never really held back together um, until recently where there was unity again. So can you give us a sense of the 06 leadership? I mean, Jim, as you alluded, Jim Dinning came back in from private industry. A lot of big names ran. What was that election about? What was the leadership race about? Well, it was probably more about personalities than anything, ultimately, is what it boiled down to. Um, I think there was, gee, at one point, there was nine or 10 people that were running, and that boiled quickly down to six or seven. Um, it was about who could continue the legacy moving forward. If you remember, a big issue was the oil and gas royalty reviews, um, you know, People felt that the oil companies were getting too much. Um, and in essence, it became a direction for Alberta. And, you know, there were a lot of different alternatives put forward, to be honest. The, the, the final three um, boiled down to, you know, Ted Morton, Ed Stelmack, and um, Jim Dinning. And they all represented. You know, certainly Ted Morton and Jim Dinning represented the opposite ends of the spectrum of the conservative spectrum. And then you had Ed, Ed Stelmack, who was a nice guy and probably the safest. And he subsequently came up the middle and, and obviously won. So and you were fourth just for context, right? You on the first round. Fourth. Yeah, the interesting part, I think, was fourth by like 100 or 200 votes. So it was uh, you know, it wasn't a lot. I mean, maybe it was a thousand, but there wasn't an awful lot of votes, uh, which was interesting. So you say personalities because many people, especially having worked in conservative politics, they either see it as like uh, North versus South with, with Ed Winning, or they see it as fiscal versus social conservatism and to be more, more blunt, you know, Red Tory versus uh, SoCon or what have you. So you saw it as personality. I mean, there were other factors at play, I assume. Yeah, I, I think what you had is you had, you know, as I say, the two extremes. You had Jim Dinning at one who was probably certainly more of a red Tory than Ted Morton. And you had Ted Morton on the other side. And what ended up happening was the people who voted for Jim Dinning for their second choice weren't going to put Ted Morton, so they put Ed Stelmack. The people who voted for Ted Morton weren't going to put Jim Dinning they put uh, Ed Stelmack and Ed Stelmack came through in the weighted ballots, the, the way the system worked. And I think it was because like Ed was a nice guy. 
Um, he really didn't offend many people. He didn't get into huge, uh, um, you know, political bashing. Uh, you had Ted Morton and Jim Deaning actually going after each other pretty hard for, you know, all being in the same political party and political family. So, and the other thing that happened is that you had both Ted and Jim from Calgary, and they were both fighting over the same base in Calgary, which allowed Ed to have the rural and the Edmonton base, which helped considerably. And after that, um, you were brought back into cabinet as finance minister? That's correct. And was that, I mean, I assume Ed was trying to unify the party by having Norse, more to the point, how did, how do you think Ed brought the party together after that? Well, I think, you know, obviously in his first, um, first cabinet, uh, there was a lot more rural representation because he had to, you know, he had to give the jobs to people that were loyal to him. And I think you saw that you saw in a large number of the, you know, rural MLAs that backed him. I think there had to be some healing with the dinning MLAs. Um, there wasn't very many MLAs who actually supported Ted, um, but he had to, he had to have that healing. And uh, some say he did a good job at it and some say perhaps not so good a job, you know, and ultimately, what happened is the MLAs basically turned on him and uh, he retired, but it, uh, you know, who knows, I guess history will tell whether or not he did a good job or not. And uh, one of the factions that you talked about were known as the Bourbon Boys. Um, I won't name names. It's just a nickname <laughs> that was going on. Um, you're a doctor. You have seen... Uh, everyone's medical issues living in a small town. But I was thinking, like, stepping back, politics can be a pretty rough on health and wellness for an MLA, and people cope with it differently. And one of those ways, as I've talked to some other people before this interview, is the drinking culture. So I was wondering what you thought, just taking a step aside, as far as the health and wellness in, in politics, because I know mental health and addictions are getting profile now, but in your career, it was, it wasn't discussed that way. No, it wasn't. Although it was, you know, kind of, kind of the closet um, component. Uh, there was a fair amount of drinking, you know, going on. It was a high stress situation, a high stress scenario. And you had a lot of people, um, you know, away from their homes, away from their families. So it became, you know, what's that a lot of people, and I'm not going to hold myself out holier than thou, um, a lot of people, you know, drank and partied and things like that. And, and just for point of reference, this is, and you mentioned the Bourbon Boys, this is not something that was new purely to Ed Stelmach's government. Uh, one of the facts that occurred when Peter Lougheed was in, that the reason he actually had um, nighttime sittings of the legislature was so that his rural MLAs wouldn't go out on the town and get in trouble when they were in town. 
And so subsequently he made them come back and sit at eight o'clock at night till 10 o'clock to try and break that habit, break that, that circle. So I had no I, idea. I, that's why the night seat, night settings were there in part. That's where it came from. Yeah. That's where it came from, from Peter Lahey doing that. And, um, so subsequently, you know, I think you've got a high stress job. Uh, you've got people away from their family. You've got people, um, you know, who sits in the legislature who, you know, say, well, come over for a drink afterwards, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that there was, you know, a fair amount of alcohol consumed. And uh, I think, you know, if you ever take a look, look at the pit before and after pictures of people and uh, you'll certainly oh, yeah. see a big difference. Um, let's go back. Uh, so you're, your finance minister, and that was one of the most interesting pieces for me to look at when I was looking at your bio and putting together um, some background, because you talked about the struggle being in infrastructure and transportation with the politics. Finance minister, I assume you're president of Treasury Board. That's the ultimate in the politics of the budget and the capital plan. Can you talk a bit just like high level being finance minister and then give some thought on like the intense lobbying from your own caucus plus the rest of the province on uh, the budget? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the interesting part is that was when Alberta had money. And uh, generally what happens when governments have money, we had our debt paid off um, in my first uh, year as a finance minister, I think the surplus was seven or $8 billion. So you had a situation where um, no was a lot harder to say than yes. And uh, there were a lot of good ideas. There was a lot of um, people coming forward saying, I want this for my constituency. You know, I want this, I want that, you've got money. And from my point of view, I was looking ahead and I was a firm believer that when you accelerate the operating spend, that that goes on forever. But the one-time dollars are capital dollars, and that should be treated as such. So you couldn't really, I, I, during my, my term as finance minister, I did not increase the, the operational spend because that would go on forever. And you know, $10 million one year would be $10 million forever and ever. And so I tried to rein that in as much as I could, which was difficult because you had public sector unions coming in and saying, you know, we want 10% or 7%. And you know, I had to hold the line and, and many of us, you know, I, I didn't do it alone. There were many of us that were certainly wanted to hold the line, but there was also a big force to spend. And, you know, you had a lot of nice things that uh, government could spend on. And I tried my damnedest to hold the line. And generally I did. And which I felt was very, very important. But you were lobbied all the time, you know, at all places to attempt to spend the money. And for context, you probably had the best economic factors of any finance minister in a very long time, right? You had very high prices for oil, natural gas surpluses uh, into the horizon. Did you start the sustainability fund and some of the other things that um, built kind of a savings account other than the heritage fund? No, the sustainability fund was, was um, 
built before I was in government, or, or sorry, before I was in as Minister of Finance. I think it was actually Steve West who, who um, actually built it. And it was a, a certain percentage of the profit was put into the sustainability fund and could only be used, like the sustainability fund was a great idea. And what it was, it was because our economy had potential to fluctuate so dramatically, it was something that could be used for in-year, and I stress in-year, uh, variation. So if the price of oil went from $100 down to $50, which it could, obviously that affected the government revenue hugely. And therefore, uh, what you saw was that sustainability fund could be used then with the idea that it would actually be permanently corrected with the next budget. So great idea, um, but unfortunately it was taken away. Now on the on the lobbying, back to that just for a second, do you, do you find any types of MLAs were more likely to lobby? Like, was it a rural urban? Was it, did you find any irony in maybe like fiscal conservatives being the ones making the case um, for their riding? Everyone deserves their fair share. Like how, how did you, do you have any thoughts there? No, it, you know, ultimately, the MLA's responsibility is for his own riding. And so every MLA wanted stuff, uh, whether it's roads or buildings or whatever, they wanted it for their own riding. And it was not as though they were putting it in their own pockets or anything, but uh, they wanted, you know, the, the government largesse at that point to benefit them and their particular constituency. So I certainly hold no grudges about people who are lobbying me. Um, that's, that was their job to represent their people. And it was our job as the cabinet members and minister of finance to say yes and no to certain proposals, but keep your eye on the larger goal. Now, I can imagine being lobbied by caucus was difficult, but ultimately um, you would have to meet with the premier about the budget, having gone through ministries proposing through the treasury board and then through your department into the premier's office. How did you work with, with Ed on the budget? Was he hands-off? Was he hands-on? Was he in the middle? How did you guys work together on that? He tended to be hands-off, and he tended to leave it to cabinet and treasury board to make the decisions. Um, you know, there were some things that he made known uh, that he wanted, and obviously he was a premier, so you, you gave them to him. But as a general rule... Um, you know, he was hands off on it, which is the way it should be. Ed won at the end of 06, your finance minister and shortly after, um, but you didn't run in the 08 election. Any, any thoughts? I mean, you had been elected four or five times by that point. Uh, enough was enough. What were your thoughts on, on leaving public life? Well, actually I was nominated for the 2008 election. So I'd already gone through nomination. And I just decided at that time that, you know, take the walk in the snow kind of thing. And I decided that it was time to get out. It, uh, I wasn't particularly enamored with the direction that we were going. Um, I felt that, you know, there's bad things coming. And if you remember in 2007, 2008, this was when the asset-backed commercial paper became an issue. Um, 
you know, things as we looked out and, and perhaps to my benefit, I was privy to a lot of um, forecasts that maybe not everyone was. And I just felt that, you know, it was time. Uh, I'd been in government a long time. I'd been in, you know, 15 years, uh, 16 years, 15 years. And I just felt that it was, it was time to, you know, I, I didn't win the, the uh, leadership and it was time to let the new leader um, lead. So it was time for me to go at that point. And now that you've been out of politics for a few years, um, one thing that people say is how fast the pace is now with social media and the like, are there, do you have any other thoughts? What, what do you see from the outside since you've, you've left? Well, I, to be honest, I haven't looked closely at it. Um, I've done a few things with Alberta Health the last couple of years, but in essence, I wasn't involved in government for, you know, considerable amount of time, like eight or 10 years. Um, what I see, though, is, you know, first of all, I, I ha empathize with all of the politicians of today and regardless of the political stripe. And the reason I do that is because of social media, where every person sitting in a basement all of a sudden becomes the world expert on the finances of Alberta and is willing to say the crudest, rudest things possible to you. And that's their given right. And the minute that you say something back to them, um, you're the one who has broken the rules. And I truly empathize with politicians today because of that. Uh, you've taken the, the opinionated politicians who actually have something to say and made them just a shade of gray, you know, made them melt toast. And I think that the, our democratic society has lost because of that. I really do. Um, so I, I empathize with that position. But what I also see, and you know, again, this is purely as an outsider, is I don't see these guys having a lot of fun. Um, when I was in politics, I was in there and I had a lot of fun. It was, it was good. It was, we made decisions. Um, we had the good with the bad, but it wasn't all a stressful environment. Um, there was camaraderie. Um, there was irreverence. There was all the things that are kind of fun. Um, I don't see that now. And that's very, very unfortunate. And another thing that I've heard talking to the people I've spoken with so far um, on your social media point is decency. And that yeah. even in the past, even if you're on, Ray Martin told me people were calling me a communist and then I was having a drink with them after. And that's not decent for question period, but that's question period. But there, there was camaraderie, camaraderie even within um, the legislature between parties, and it seems like that decency uh, from online has just gone everywhere in politics. Yeah, it, it you know, there's the battle lines are drawn. Um, Ray was absolutely right. We used to go out and, you know, after the legislature, if there was a liberal MLA sitting at a table or a new Democrat MLA, they would come over and join us and we would talk, we would joke, we would, you know, take it in context. But um, that doesn't seem to be there now. It really doesn't. I, sh I should have asked before we started getting more reflective, but 
you, I met you because you were active with the Wild Rose and I was a Wild Rose staffer. And um, I'm just one, you hadn't completely left politics. You're still a little bit active. Any thoughts on, you know, the split between the PCs and the Wild Rose going into, you know, the 12 election and, and beyond and now we're unified again? Yeah, I, I think it was something that was very unfortunate. I fully understand the reason. Um, you had a conservative party that was going more towards left, center left than center right. And uh, there were a lot of people that didn't like, didn't like that. And so that's what spawned the Wild Rose um, Party. And obviously there was a, a lot of momentum of the Wild Rose Party. Um, you know, and I, I won't speak as to what happened or why it happened or anything like that, but I think it's back in the proper place. The Conservative Party, by definition, should be a big tent party. And uh, that's what needs to happen. I think the UCP has the potential to be a big tent. Um, and I think in generally they have. So, you know, what I wouldn't like to see is I wouldn't like to see more parties, more center-right parties or right-wing parties coming in and taking away the UCP vote. I think that the battles need to be fought within the UCP tent and everyone needs to come out united. Alberta Conservatives are very tough people to manage or lead or work with, aren't they? Yeah, I... Everyone has. I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. I apologize, but having worked ten years in conservative politics, I know we've been through. It's been wild, uh, floor crossing, etc. It's a tough group. It's a tough room. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I, I think you've got to go back to Ralph Klein, where he said, "When you see a parade, get in front of it." I think you've you've got to listen and res allow people to speak, allow people to give respect and respect the decisions and carry them out. Um, I think generally the people of Alberta know what's right for Alberta and uh, the politicians have got to start listening to them. This has been part two of my conversation with Dr. Lyle Oberg. Future episodes include former MLA's Karen Libavici, Iris Evans, Denny Ducharme, and Lori Blakeman. Thank you.